Well, we're looking at the topic of God and science, and um, it's a topic which often is seen as one of conflict. Um, people saying that science is saying one thing, God or Christianity is saying something completely different, and they, they're just bashing together, just clashing with each other. Um, one of the advocates from science that very much sees it as a conflict is a guy called Richard Dawkins, and um, he says this, um, the universe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Do you see where he's coming from? <laughs> uh, Richard Dawkins, one of the most outspoken um, atheistic, non-believing God scientists, is um, almost passionate to convince people that you shouldn't believe in God, that it's a bad thing to do. Um, and yet his, his vision of what the universe is about as, as being pitiless indifference is quite depressing, isn't it? And people often think, well, that's what scientists think. Scientists think that so God can't exist. Scientists think that the Bible's rubbish, that Christianity's rubbish. But not all scientists do. There are many, many scientists that are Christians. Uh, when I was at university, my impression was that those studying science were more likely to be Christian than those not studying science. Um, uh, here's um, a guy who works at um, Cambridge. He's not as well known as Richard Dawkins, but he's um, as equally as um, proficient in terms of his academic ability. Um, it's Russell Cowburn, Professor of Experimental Physics at Cambridge. And he says, understanding more of science doesn't make God smaller. It allows us to see his creative activity in more detail. <coughs> Last week we, we looked at um, God, me and the stars uh, and we saw that how um, that modern science, rather than actually showing us that God doesn't exist, um, pointed in many ways to the fact that God does exist. It, it said that maybe there is someone who's kick-started, got the universe going with the Big Bang. What's behind the Big Bang? Uh, when we look at the, the design of the universe, the way that the, the laws, are fine, laws are in place, um, we think, well, who's the lawgiver? When we look at how fine-tuned the universe is, we think, well, who's tuned the universe to make it just right? Um, these things point to the idea that there is a God, rather than discounting some idea of God. But when it comes to the Bible, um, people think, well, does the Bible and science really agree? And particularly we think of Genesis chapter 1. There it seems to say that God created the world in six days. Uh, and people have gone back and tried to calculate how long ago that was. And so they say that was 6,000 years ago. And yet modern science says that um, the earth was created 4.8 billion years ago. That's a bit bigger than 6,000, by the way. Um, and the universe is 13.8 billion years old. Does that mean that the Bible and science contradict each other? That seems to be one of the greatest clashes there is between science and the Bible. Well, we'll come to look at that particular issue a bit later on. Before we do that, I think it's important that we turn to Psalm 19 that James read to us a moment ago. Because this psalm helps us to see... Um, that God is a God who speaks. The God who created the whole universe, vast and incredible as it is, is a God that wants to speak to us. And in this psalm, it talks about two words from God. God's word in nature and God's word through scripture, through the Bible. And the first half of the psalm is very much... Um, talking about God's word from nature. It begins there, doesn't it? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim 
the work of his hands, declaring, proclaiming, this is speaking, this is telling people, this is showing people. If you look at the universe, it's saying, look, think about who made this. Think about who's behind it. Think about the lawgiver, the fine tuner, the kickstarter. Think about the one that got this going. And it shows us something about how amazing and how wonderful and awesome God really is. And it's a message that's open to all people. Um, look at verse 4, it says, Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. The word of nature is a word that teaches us about God. And in a sense, this, the first half of this psalm is an invitation to science. It's an invitation to study the natural world. To look at what it shows us about God. To have that sort of attitude that Russell Cowburn has. To see that God is not made smaller than we study science. God is made bigger. As Christians, we should be enthusiastic scientists. Now, obviously, not all of us will go into great depth with that. But some maybe will do. Science is looking at God's word in nature. It's a word of truth. It's a word we should listen to. But this is a psalm with two halves, and the second half begins in verse 7, and suddenly it switches, doesn't it? It goes, um, the law of the Lord is perfect. It talks about, starts talking about scripture, starts talking about God's word in the Bible. Um, Brian Cox, in his book Human Universe, quotes um, an American author called John Updike, and he says this, Astronomy is what we now have, instead of theology. So astronomy is the study of the stars, theology is the study of God. The terrors are less, but the comforts are nil. He's saying that when, when we, we focus just on science and try and kick God out of the picture, what are we left with? Well, we might be less worried about eternal judgment, but actually what have we got to comfort us, comfort us in this life? What have we got to give us hope, purpose, direction? Science by itself cannot give us those things. But scripture shows us more than just than nature shows us. Scripture actually shows us God himself speaking directly to us. And so verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy making wise the simple. And, and because scripture does this, it's valuable. It's more valuable than anything else. I don't, don't know if you really realise that. If you look at verse um, 10, 11, it says, sorry, verse 10. It says, they're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. It's a real value to God's words. We have such easy access to it today, don't we? There's Bibles in the pews, um, probably a lot of you got more than one Bible at home. Um, you can get it on your phones, you can get it on the internet, you can download it, get access to it. It's so easy because it's so easy to get hold of that we don't value it as much. And yet, this psalmist says this is something really worth having. Because it shows us more than nature, it shows us God's purposes, God's plans. You see, our study of nature, our study of science has given us so much reward, isn't it? You think of some of the great achievements of science over the last couple of hundred years. Um, illnesses like um, polio destroyed. People's life expectancy now is much longer. 
Um, our quality of life is much better. We, we can do amazing things like have a video from people in South Africa and, and watch it the same week that it's been, been recorded. Um, we can talk to people on the phone hundreds of miles away. We can be connected and travel from place to place in, in record times. These are amazing advances of science. And yet science is still limited. God's word gives us even more. Science may be able to connect us with someone on the other side of the world. God's word connects us with the creator of the universe. Science may be able to extend our life. God's word shows us how we can have eternal life. Do you see why it's valuable? In verse 11, the psalmist writes, By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. God's two words, the word of nature and the word of scripture. Both are true. Both are from God. But scripture can give us so much more. And yet when we come to ask this question, do science and Christianity contradict each other? Do science and Christianity clash? Is there, is there um, a, an argument between them? Is there a difference between them? Then having looked at this psalm, we want to say, well, we shouldn't really expect that. If science is a study of nature, we'd expect that the word of nature will be in line with the word of scripture because they're both from the same person, ultimately they're both from God. And yet, there are problems. And the problems are not to do with God, they're not to do with nature, they're not to do with scripture, the problems are to do with us. Look at the end of the psalm, the psalmist says, who can discern their own errors Forgive my hidden faults. He acknowledges that he's far from perfect. There's sin in his heart, there's error in his heart. And you see, you can think of science in this way. You can think of science as the interpretation of God's word of nature. You can think of science as God, the interpretation of God's word of nature. And, and God's word of nature may be true and pure, but when hu fallible human beings like you and me come to interpret it, then we get it wrong. Partly because we're stupid, and partly because actually we're often biased. We're often corrupted. So remember last week I told you Albert Einstein, he, his theory was that the universe was stable, that it was unchanging, that it had always been there, um, and yet the science proved him wrong. Um, when it came to study of nature, it just turned out that his theory was wrong. And actually, good science, if you talk to a scientist, says it's always open that any scientific theory is always open to being proved, proved wrong. It's always open to the possibility of being falsified, that someone might come along with an experiment that shows actually this is not the way the universe works. And actually, good scientists get excited about that because it means you've got a whole new mystery to solve. And sometimes you might notice that you get this big announcement that scientists have discovered, discovered this thing or they found this thing and then a couple of years later there's another announcement that says actually that was wrong, we've now discovered this. And we should expect that because we're fallible human beings trying to interpret nature. When I was um, a young, young lad back in the 80s, there was a great breakthrough, cold fusion. Any of you remember that? Um, the idea of fusion is when you, you smash two atoms together and you get lots of energy out of it. And that's what the sun does, that's why the sun's so, so strong. Um, and people have been trying to crack the way of getting, using fusion to make power for decades and decades now. But you need to do it at really, really high temperatures. 
And yet these two scientists claimed that they'd done it at really low temperatures, which made it much easier, which means, meant they could be a, a great source of power. But exciting as everyone was about this, it very quickly turned out that no one could repeat their experiments. No one could make it work. It was obviously a mistake. It was obviously a failure. Science is about interpreting nature. And not every interpretation is as equal as every other interpretation. Think about the issue of climate change. You will find scientists that say that climate change is a load of rubbish. And you'll find these days more scientists that will say that it's reality. That human um, burning of carbon is causing the temperatures on this planet to rise. Why do they disagree with different interpretations of the, what, the experiments and the, the data that's out there? But you might be suspicious that those that are saying that it's not happening, maybe they're because they're working for companies that rely on carbon fuels. There's a bias there that's distorting the science. And of course, this is an issue, this is an interpretation that really matters, isn't it? Um, it matters that the climate change is happening because of humans, because we need to do something about it if it is. But if it's not, then actually that could be a complete waste of time. Interpreting nature is important, but not every interpretation is equal. And the same goes with God's word of Scripture. As we come to Scripture, Christianity, in a sense, is about interpreting the Scriptures, about interpreting the Bible. Um, and if you're in church so for long enough, you'll know that there's often different disagreements about how to interpret parts of the Bible, parts of, parts of Scripture. And that shouldn't surprise us because we're fallible, sinful human beings trying to interpret it. And again, sometimes those interpretations don't really matter that much. Um, those differences don't matter much. Sometimes they, they matter a lot. Um, and not every interpretation is equal to every other. Sometimes people will say, oh, we, we all count with different ideas from, the, from the, this passage, um, and everyone's idea is equally valid because it's from the Bible. But, but not always. Some ideas are complete distortions of what the Bible actually says. Um, that's sometimes done because people are being careless. Sometimes it's deliberate. Maybe the worst example of that in history is when um, the Bible was used to justify slavery. Actually, if you read the Bible carefully, although it doesn't say that slavery should be stopped, um, full stop, in the, when it was written, it does say a lot of things that undermine the whole concept of slavery. It was a distortion of what Scripture actually said. And yet it was done for very evil purposes. Science is about interpreting nature, interpreting nature Christianity is about interpreting scripture. We need to do both correctly, as best we can. Both are important. But this is the framework we need to come at when we come at Genesis chapter 1 and think about how Genesis chapter 1 fits in terms of this debate between science and Christianity. You see, it's not so much about, a, we shouldn't expect a conflict between science, or between the word of nature and the word of scripture, because both are from God, which you expect them to be in agreement. But we might expect there to be a conflict between interpretations of nature and interpretations of Scripture, because that's where humanity comes in and humans mess up. So I want to look at four um, different ways that people have looked at um, interpreting Genesis chapter 1. You know, you all know Genesis chapter 1? Basically, it says God created the heavens and the earth, and it talks about a week. Um, so on the first day, he created light and dark. 
The second day he created the sky and sea. The third day he created the lands. The fourth day he created the star, the sun and the stars and the moon. The fifth day he created the um, birds in the sky, the fish in the sea. The sixth day he created the animals um, and the people. And on the seventh day he had a rest. Okay, that's it. There you go. Short to the point. That's what happens in Genesis chapter one. Um, and people have looked at this um, over the centuries and said, well, this, is this, how are we meant to take this? How are we meant to understand this passage? How are we meant to interpret this part of Scripture? Um, and I want to give you four ways. There's, tonight I might give you more ways. If you want to come along tonight, I've, I've, got, I've found an article that gives you 11 different ways of interpreting it. Um, <laughs> um, but I want to give you four main ways today. So first of all, there's what's called the young earth creationists, um, or young earth creationism. Uh, and this... this as we go down, actually, these people, goes from people that want to try to take um, scripture very literally, um, but try and ignore the science, the, the, the science, scientific consensus, down to those that take the Bible less literally in this passage and try and agree more with the scientific consensus. So, first one, young earth creationism. Um, these are people that say that the days in Genesis 1 should be taken literally as 24-hour periods. Sun goes, no, the earth, earth spins round. We get 24 hours, that's one day. So the first day is 24 hours, second day is 24 hours, and so on. This means that the Earth was created about 6,000 years ago. It was created in a very short period, over six days. Um, and that has the advantage of being a very simple and easy way to see how it fits with, with Scripture um, um, and interpreting Scripture in that way. But the problem is, modern scientists say, well, there's lots of evidence to suggest that the world is much older than that. Um, on holiday a couple of years ago, we went down some um, caves in Derbyshire, way below the ground, and you can see there fossilised shells in the rock, buried and compressed. And it's very hard to believe that's only a few thousand years old. And scientists say it's millions of years old. And when you think about the, su- the, the stars in the sky, we know that the speed of light means that those stars, um, the light from those stars is taking thousands and millions of years to get to us. How could that be true if God created the world only 6,000 years ago? The young earth creationists say, well, actually, it's because the scientists are interpreting nature wrong, and they come up with their own science to try and explain it more. Um, but, a lot, but the problem is, the way it struggles is that people aren't really particularly convinced by that science. So that's one way. Then you've got um, the old earth creationism. This isn't um, something that's believed by all people. It's, um, something, it's saying, actually... We accept that the earth is old, as science says, um, and what we're going to say is that the word day, the Hebrew word for day, which is yom, actually, when you look in the Bible, it, it can mean day, it's 24 hours, but it can mean other things as well. It can mean just a period of time. Uh, and so sometimes people say we should translate it not as a day, but as an era. So you've got, what you've got here is six eras, six periods of time. Um, there's a couple of problems with this. First, in interpreting scripture, the, the days are put in the context of a week, which is less more the sort of 24-hour thing. Um, and actually, when you think about the way the earth has developed, um, the birds developed at the same time as the animals, not in a previous era, in days five and six. So it, it doesn't really fit either with the interpretation of nature or the interpretation of scripture. But that may be one way of looking at it. Uh, the third way is to think about divine days. So actually, when it's talking in Genesis 1, it's talking about God's work, isn't it? God did this, God did that, God did that. God's creating the universe. And it's God that rests on the seventh day. And that pattern of the week is really an important framework, important structure for the whole of Genesis. But it's focusing on God doing it. 
Um, God then being an example for us to follow in our pattern of weeks to have one day off a week. But if God is doing it, is it does it make sense for God to count these as 24-hour days? Does it make sense for God to be thought of as living in days in our universe? In 2 Peter 3, um, verse 8, it says that to God, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Time for God isn't the same as time for us. Um, even Augustine, um, a Christian writer back in the 4th century, said, can we really think about God being um, in a human day with the sun going around the earth? And isn't God outside of the universe and bigger than the universe? How can we understand him having a day? And maybe one way to think about it is that actually what it's describing here is God as like the divine architect. So God's sitting in his architect's study. He sits down on the first day and he thinks, I know, let's have light and darkness. And he puts that on his plan. And on the second day he says, well, let's, let's split up the sky and sea for, for earth. And on the third day, he says, well, we'll have, we'll have some land as well, and, and we'll put plants on the land. And on the fourth day, well, let's have some let's planets so we go have a sun in the sky in the daytime, and they can see the stars and the moon at night time, and so on like that. So God is sitting down in study day by day, planning things out, and the plan's finished on the sixth day, and he thinks, great, I'll have a rest. Um, so we just see it as God working, God planning. And then, just like an architect does his plans, but doesn't actually build the building, God then sends his plans off and the process of science describes the process of actually building and working out the plans that way. Maybe that's one way to think about it. The fourth way to think about it is to say, well, is, this, is Genesis 1 really meant to be taken um, as literal scientific writings? Clearly the purpose of Genesis 1 is not to give us a detailed scientific description about how the world came about. The purpose of Genesis 1 is to say that the world came about because God created it, because God said so, because God made it. It's God's plan, it's God's purpose. It's not worried about the process. It's not worried about the detail of how it came, came to be. A lot of the Bible is history, and we need to take it as history, but is Genesis 1 meant to be history? Is it meant to be taken as what actually happened in time and space? Um, or is it a poetic writing trying to make a point? When we come to Psalm 19, it says that the um, God pitched a tent in the the sky for the sun. Are we meant to think of the sky as a tent? Well, of course not. We know it's poetry. Um, in a, another, another psalm we're looking at next week, it says that God knitted me together in my mother's womb. Does that mean we're meant to think of God sitting inside our mother with knitting needles and wool and sort of knitting us together like that? Of course not. Um, it, it's poetry. It's picture language. And a lot of people say, well, maybe Genesis 1 is meant to be seen in that way. Um, there's a structure to it, structured around the dates, um, but just as he creates um, light and dark on day one and then puts the stars and the um, sun in there on day four, there's a structure to it. Uh, when you come to Genesis 2, it seems to give another creation story that's um, slightly different in its approach to Genesis 1. Maybe that's trying to tell us that we shouldn't take these as being literal. Um, Oregon, who wrote in the 3rd century AD, said that um, how can, we're not meant to take it literally because the sun's not created till day four. How can we have days if there's no sun? It's clearly not meant to be literal. So even back in the earliest um, writings of Christianity, people were disagreeing about how to interpret Genesis 1. I'll give you all that. And my favourite views, I, I tend more towards the last two. You've probably guessed that from what I've been saying as, as interpretations of Genesis 1. But the key thing is this, that 
we should as Christians see both the word of nature and the word of scripture as true words coming to us from God. But sometimes people will interpret them wrong and interpret them falsely. And in that interpretation, you will get a conflict from time to time. You will get differences of opinion. But we must assume and focus on both being true and seek to decide the best interpretation, the correct interpretation of what the truth is, both from Scripture and from nature. Let's pray.